As I mentioned, we are uh, continuing in 1 Corinthians this week, and um, every week uh, as we gather together as a church family, uh, where Paul's taken us now in 1 Corinthians, uh, he's going to be talking about the Lord's Supper. He's going to be talking about communion. And every week as a church, we do this thing called communion. We come together, uh, we come forward after a song, during a song, we go off to this table, we eat some bread and some wine. Uh, and it's a, something that we do every single week. And maybe some of you have wondered why we even do that in the first place. Or maybe why we do it weekly. What's the purpose of it? Uh, is it just intermission? Is it just a sign that the service is over? What is the point of communion? And the Corinthian church also used to do communion. And it seems that they also forgot the point. Uh, they forgot what the whole purpose of communion is. And Paul wants to remind the Corinthian church of what this is supposed to be. What is the Lord's Supper? What is communion? Because as you can suspect, the Corinthians, as a kind of a funky, messed up church as they are, they weren't going about partaking communion together in a very good way. And so one of the pictures that we see or we can kind of think through, and this is why Paul wants to remind them of communion, because you might picture it this way. Let's say you've got a friend. You know, think of just one of your friends that you've got uh, just uh, in your social life at school or whatever it might be. Uh, or maybe you're married, you've got a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Uh, and you first meet them, and you're excited about this relationship, but then you never actually talk with them. You never actually spend time with them. You just kind of like see them in passing and wave. You would never deepen your relationship with this person. And so what happens is sometimes we take for granted our friends, our family, our spouses, and we don't have this concerted time to remind ourselves of what it is that we love about this person. We kind of just take them for granted. We just hang out with them and just kind of go about our business. And it's important for us with our physical relationships, and as Paul's going to point out, even our relationship with Jesus, to spend time regularly to remind yourself of what he's done for you, who he is. We need to figure out how to constantly remind ourselves of who Jesus is and the grace that he's given, the love that he's shown us. Otherwise, we're just going to take them for granted, just go about our business, checking off boxes and looking good on the outside, but there's going to be no affection, no love on the inside. And this is what's been happening with the Corinthians. So uh, I'd like to pray for our text, uh, and then we'll be jumping into this uh, section in 1 Corinthians 11. Well, Father, as we uh, open your word now, we ask that your Holy Spirit would lead us into this truth and guide us into the truths that we need to hear today. Because as much as we can maybe laugh a little bit at some of the things that the Corinthian church did, we kind of think, oh man, these guys are crazy, but we are really, we're no different. We have our own tendencies to sway and to wander, to forget. We've got uh, gospel amnesia constantly, forgetting who we are in your son and forgetting uh, what he's done for us. And as Paul now is going to be reminding them of not only just the gospel, but this particular way that we remind ourselves as a church family of the gospel, we, we also need this today. So Holy Spirit, guide us into this truth this morning. Help us to find a home in our hearts. That it would live in our hearts, that it would abide in our hearts, and it would grow in our hearts. 
We love you so much. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that guides us into your word. We thank you for our church family. And we ask for grace now as we uh, dive into your word and remind ourselves of who your son is and what he's done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Paul says this, In the following instructions, I do not commend you. You don't want a paragraph to start out that way when you're getting a letter from an apostle. I don't commend you in this. Because when you come together, it's not for the better, it's for the worse. Now imagine that if Life Mission Church gets this letter. (laughs) Hey, it's better if you guys just stay home. (laughs) For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear there's divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. Now, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. So I'm going to stop there, and I'm going to, we're going to go further into some text, but I want to explain this part here. Because every week, like us, the church in Corinth would gather on Sunday, and what they would do also, uh, in addition to just gathering together, this is something we don't do, is they'd actually would enjoy a whole meal together before taking communion. Communion, the Lord's Supper in the early church, was a set-aside time during a meal or maybe after a meal. They'd eat together. They'd have fellowship. This is the way they would gather, sometimes in homes, sometimes in public places, uh, most often probably at homes. And at some point during this meal that this church would gather and, and enjoy together, uh, they'd also set a, time, uh, set a time aside during the meal to, uh, to draw attention to the Lord. So you might picture maybe something like this. If we gathered in homes, maybe we have a barbecue or a potluck, and we're all hanging out, and you know, maybe it's not time yet. Maybe we just heard the sermon, or maybe the sermon's coming, but we're just kind of having a time of fellowship. We're having this barbecue, and we're hanging out outside, and at some point, someone calls everyone's attention. You know, maybe ring a little triangle or something like that, or you know, clink some glasses, very similar to maybe a toast that you'd see at a wedding. And this person, the, the head of the party, or the host, or maybe what they might call the patron, Uh, Maybe it was one of the elders, maybe it was just the owner of the home. They would call attention during this meal, and they'd say, hey, we're going to set aside some time right now. And it really was kind of like a toast, as far as what we can sort of relate to. And they would stop what they're doing, they'd put their plates down, maybe they're halfway through the meal, maybe they're done with the meal. And then they would now draw attention to the Lord. And they would set aside this time during the meal and have what they called the Lord's Supper. They had kind of their supper... And they would set this time aside to have the Lord's Supper. Everyone stopped what they were doing. And all the eyes would be on this host, this patron. And they would listen to what he had to say. But Paul here is saying, what you're doing as you guys gather together and eat your food, this isn't the Lord's Supper. You guys are coming together, you're eating, but it's not the Lord's Supper. It's just regular supper. And not only that, but it's actually, you're being very rude in this supper. Look what he says now in verse 21. For in eating, so he just says, you know, this isn't the Lord's Supper. He goes, because in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. So they're not, they're not waiting for each other. You know, they're just, they're, just, they're just going out like it's a buffet line. One goes hungry. Another guy's getting drunk. That's kind of crazy, right? And then he goes, what? what's going on here? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Now skip down to verse 33, and we're going to go back to the middle verses soon. It says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. 
If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it won't be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give instructions when I come. So Paul is, he begins by addressing these divisive attitudes. Coming together as a church is supposed to be a time that actually brings unity for the church. That we have this union, this camaraderie together, that we're family. And in part, as a show of that unity, they would partake in what he previously called in 1 Corinthians, the, the cup of blessing. By, by sharing in this meal, it was supposed to show this, this oneness, this gathering of family, church family, spiritual family. But there's a lot of divisions in the church that we saw earlier on in 1 Corinthians. And it seems that what's happening is one of a, maybe a couple things, as you kind of see some of the language he uses here. Seems that some people were coming to these get-togethers. Maybe they're showing up early. Uh, and and he, he mentioned something about some, uh, some people not having food. Uh, and so it seems like there's some different classes of people, some wealthier people, some poor people that don't have food. Uh, it could be uh, one thing could be that uh, maybe the people who have more money, maybe they own their own business or whatever, they have a more flexible schedule. Maybe they're showing up at three o'clock and they can go ahead and eat. But some of the poorer people that might have to be working and don't have that flexibility, they can't get there till five or whatever. And it seems like the people that are getting there early don't care about the other people that can't make it on time. And so they're just going, oh, we don't need to wait for them. So they're very rudely not really considering those people. Then when they get there, there's no food left. And so now they can't even partake in the meal itself. And he seems to also, there's kind of some inference in there that, that because this was, seemed like almost like a potluck, because he says, don't despise the one who doesn't, who doesn't have any food, doesn't bring any food. So it seems like there were some people that couldn't afford to bring food, and instead of letting them eat their own, other people's food, they just ate all the food and just said, well, too bad, buddy, you don't get to eat. So he said, what's, what's going on here? He goes, if this is going to be the case, he goes, don't you have homes of your own that you can eat and drink in? If you're going to do it this way, just eat at home and then come to church. I'd rather have you just eat at home and eat on your own rather than come here, and now you're going to have God's judgment on you rather than God's blessing. So he says, it's better just for you to stay at home because what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. You have no consideration for other people. There's no unity in this church. It's a disgrace. Stay home. Eat and drink at home and then come. But what you're doing right now, this isn't working. And so that's what he's getting at with them. And now he wants to go back to the drawing board and remind them of what communion is supposed to be, what the Lord's Supper is supposed to be. So let's go back to verse 23 here. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's get kind of a, a picture of this. Now, in, in your own homes, when you guys have dinner, uh, when you gather around a table, maybe dad prays for the meal, or uh, maybe you rotate and have some, one of the kids pray for the meal, whatever it is, someone prays for the meal and gives thanks. Uh, in our home, uh, I usually pray for the meal, and so when I do, um, I, uh, I have a certain spot at our table, and, and so, you know, we would call that maybe the head of the table, right? I'm, I'm kind of the, the, the host or the patron of this meal. 
And so I pray and I give thanks to God for this meal and any particular thing that went on that day, uh, we would give thanks to God uh, in that moment. And so in this story, during this night of Jesus' last supper, he is at the head of the table. Doesn't matter what seat he's in, no matter where Jesus sits, that's the head of the table, right? But he's at the head of the table. So I want you to picture that. Here, they're having this meal, and Jesus is at the head of the table. And what does he do first? He gives thanks. Look at verse 24. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So just how you might do in your own home, the first thing he does before he eats is he gives thanks. And do you know who Jesus is giving thanks to? He's giving thanks to his Father, just like we do. And you know what he's giving his Father thanks for? He's giving thanks to his Father for providing food, just like we do. But your dad or your husband or one of the kids, whoever prays for the food, that person thanks God for providing physical bread, for physical health and physical life. And surely Jesus was grateful for that, thanking God for providing physical bread and physical drink. But the Lord's Supper is different. Here, we see Jesus sitting at the head of the table, the host, the patron of this meal, calling attention outside of this larger meal and saying, hey, we're going to set aside time, all eyes on me now, because I'm going to break some bread and we're going to remember something really specific here. So here Jesus is thanking God, not just for the physical food, but for providing a different kind of bread. He's thanking the Father for something else. Because even as he said, speaking of physical bread earlier in his life, man cannot live on bread alone. So he's thanking the Father for a different type of bread. So look back again at verse 24. When he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. He thanks God the Father providing us, not just with physical bread, but with the bread of life that gives spiritual life. So he's saying to his Father as he's giving thanks, thank you, Father, for providing us with the bread of life. This is my body broken for you. And the bread of life that Jesus is thanking the Father for is he, Jesus himself. He is, I mean, picture this. Jesus is standing before his friends, before his disciples, and he stands before his Father, and he's thanking his Father, saying, we bless you, Father, we thank you, Father, for your great plan. We thank you that you chose to send me to come to this earth and live among these people that you had this plan to have my body broken open, crucified, nailed to a cross. Father, I thank you that you had this great plan to have my blood spilled so that I could save our enemies and they could now be sons and daughters. This is what Jesus is thanking the Father for. He gives thanks. Thank you, Father, for providing me to the church. This is phenomenal. This is amazing. That Jesus is standing here, not just saying, hey, bless his food to our bodies in Jesus' name, amen. He's saying, Father, thank you. This is my body, and I can give this to these that I love. These that you have chosen before the foundation of the earth, you chose to send me and give me to be their bread and their wine. 
Thank you, Father. I bless you. I thank you. Church, this is, this is remarkable that the very host, the patron at the head of the table is thanking God for offering himself to us. Not just food, not just physical bread. The Father gives us the most ultimate gift. God himself came to us and gave himself to us as a gift. And now God himself is saying, thank you for giving me to them. Thank you for letting me die so that they might live. That is what the patron, this host, is giving thanks for. But in this text, Paul also mentions that on this very night, Jesus was betrayed as well. It's an interesting little addition that Paul had. And there's a lot of things he could have said here, but he mentions the night he was betrayed. And it might be that it's serving as a reminder that because of how the Corinthian church is acting, it seems that maybe Paul is giving a little reminder that there's always going to be people who take communion who don't do it from the heart. Because that's what Judas did, right? Judas took communion that night. And that very night he betrayed Jesus. He stabbed him in the back. And so Paul issues a warning then to people who might take communion in a wrong way, who might take communion hypocritically. They don't, they don't mean it. Here's what he says in verse 27. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner would be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So we have to first examine ourselves before we partake. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, so understanding what this is, understanding what the body represents, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So if you eat and drink without discerning what this is all about, you don't know what you're doing, you're going to drink judgment on yourself. That's why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So Paul even says that there's actually people that God has brought some, some discipline upon the church that some people are even getting sick. But if we judged ourselves truly, if we truly examine ourselves, then we won't be judged by God. If we, if we really ascertain, okay, I know I'm born again. Uh, I, I know I'm a sinner, but I know I'm born again. And so I know what I'm doing as I take communion. Then you won't have the judgment of God. But when we are judged by the Lord... We're disciplined. So he's saying not unto hell and damnation, not that kind of judgment. He clarifies we're, we're actually being disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So he makes that clear. You know, if you take communion wrongfully, it's not, uh, you know, uh, you're not going to hell. He's not saying that, that kind of judgment. You're being disciplined so that you wouldn't be condemned along with the world. So we are to partake in this remembrance. But in truth... With the Corinthians, as they take this communion, Jesus is far from their hearts. They're just kind of getting together. They don't really maybe, or at least are not acting like they love Jesus. And here Paul gives a warning even to people specifically that, that don't know Jesus, that are not, have not been born again. And Paul says it's a dangerous thing to put on that show, to put on that face, that mask, that on the outside you think, I'm good with God, oh yeah, I love God, but on the inside you're far from him. You don't really actually love Jesus. And he says that even some have fallen sick or even died because of God's displeasure with their hypocrisy. So Paul addresses 
the ones that are not treating it correctly. They're treating it like just a buffet line. Like, hey, first come, first served. Overeating at the party, over drinking at the party, not caring about people who aren't there, not caring about people who don't bring a meal. This was not a church. This is more just like a party. It's a time of fellowship. There was nothing special about this meal that they got together for. It was just a free-for-all. It was just a get-together. It wasn't church. It wasn't celebration. It was just getting together and eating some food and not caring about people. Now, for us, you know, we don't have the whole meal, but we don't want to treat communion like it's just something to close the service with or it's intermission or just kind of a, a sign that, oh, we've got to pick up our kids pretty soon or whatever it might be. We don't want to treat our time of communion in this way, that it's just kind of the thing that we do, just checking off the box. But it's an important time for our church family every single week to always close our time remembering what Jesus has done. From time to time, a sermon might be particularly heavy or particularly challenging. I don't want us ever to leave this place discouraged or beating ourselves up. And I know that happens. Our, heart, our own hearts condemn ourselves. That's what First John says. But to kind of safeguard that for us, this is why we take it weekly because I know that sometimes sermons weigh on us. And so I always want to end our service communing with Jesus as a group, as a family, as a church together. This is a a final way of our morning to preach the gospel to ourselves, that we would go knowing that we've been made one with Christ. Despite whatever the sermon might have revealed to you in your heart, you leave communing with your church family and with Jesus. This is also why we always close our service with a celebratory song. Because we want us to go with the joy of the Lord. Even though God might have revealed some sin to you, there might be something you realize, and you have, to, you have to walk through that, and you have to admit that, you have to face that thing, but we want you to leave. And I'm not talking about pat you on the back and just, hey, go get them, you know. I'm talking about being encouraged in the celebration of the gospel. We've got to leave this place each and every week being reminded of the good news. And so one of the ways we do that is by ending every single service with communion and a celebratory song that celebrates the good news, even if it's amidst a a sermon or or whatever that that might be a little heavy and and maybe have a lot of bad news in it, we've got to end our time together with good news. So how do we partake in communion in a worthy manner? You can follow along with me in your notes. First thing is you must be born again. You must be born again. Sometimes maybe you grew up in a Christian home and you just kind of think you're a Christian because of culturally. Oh, my, my family, we've been Christians for many generations and you have to be born again. Not a good person. Not Christian morals or values. Not just knowing some scripture. Not just, you know, it's not your attendance record. It's none of that stuff. You have to be born again. You've been made alive on the inside. The Holy Spirit of God has come into your heart and he is in the process of changing you. And, I know, and that takes faith to, to really know that because sometimes the process is slow and sometimes you, you backpedal a lot and you fall into sin and you struggle with things. But you have to be able to, in faith, say, I know that I have been born again. I know, I believe that God's spirit lives inside of me. I know that I was once dead in my sins and trespasses. I was an enemy of God, but I know now that I've been an adopted son or a daughter. 
And I know it's only because of Jesus, not because of anything that I've done, but I put my faith in the righteousness of Christ. Not in my righteousness, because I don't have any, but I put my faith in him. That's the first thing, we have to be born again. Second Corinthians, this is also Paul speaking to the same church, chapter 13, verse five, he says this, kind of some similar language. He says, examine yourselves. Think about this, ponder this. Explore your own heart and the inner workings of your mind. Examine yourself to see whether you are actually in the faith. You actually really do have faith in Jesus. Don't just believe that he exists. You can't just believe something. And I believe the devil exists, but I don't put my faith in him. Or you can believe that Jesus is real, Jesus is God, all those things, and yet not put your actual faith in him. Paul actually says, the demons believe. But it doesn't do anything for him. So you examine yourself to see whether you are really actually in the faith. You put your faith and your trust in him. Test yourselves, he says, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless, he says, indeed, you fail to meet the test. So we examine ourselves to see whether or not we really, truly know and believe that Jesus Christ lives inside of us, that we have been born again. We've called upon the name of the Lord, and he has answered us, and he makes us alive. And so for those of you maybe that don't believe, or maybe you're not sure, maybe even right now in the last two minutes, you're like, maybe I'm not a believer. This command to only have believers take communion. This isn't just to protect the the, the sacrament of communion. This is also for your well-being. This is also to protect you. I don't want you to have some kind of uh, uh, false assurance that, yeah, I go to church, I take communion, so I'm good with God. I, I don't want you to have a false assurance. I want you to know clearly where you stand with God because if you don't know clearly, you might live a whole life being fooled thinking you're good with God because, well, I take communion every once in a while. So if you aren't sure, then it might be time for you just to sit back and just say, you know, I need to really think about this. I've been taking communion and maybe I shouldn't be. I'm not really sure if I'm born again. Maybe I need to talk to someone, have a conversation. I need to really, I need to examine myself and test myself. So this isn't just to protect the sacrament. This is also to protect you. Uh, and, and I know you don't want to be a, a hypocrite, right? So, so if you don't know if you believe or you definitely don't believe, but you do it just because everyone else is you know, doing it, uh, I don't want you to be a hypocrite. I want you to be able to act genuinely, to be real, to be who you are. And so if that means sitting while everyone else, then that's, 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 that's good, this is why when the guys who lead communion sometimes, they'll say, you know, if you're a believer, you can come forward. Uh, if you don't believe, not sure where you stand, we'd love to talk to you. And there's people off to the sides that you can go talk and say, hey, you know, I don't know if I should be taking communion. I'm not really sure what to do at this point of the service. I'm not really sure where I stand. And so it's important, first of all, that we be born again. The second thing is you have to know what you're doing. You have to know what it is that communion is. Going back into verse 28, Paul says, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning, so without understanding the body, he eats and drinks judgment on himself, because you're doing it not knowing what you're doing. You're just doing it out of just emptiness or tradition, whatever it might be. And it's not really the Lord's Supper that you're doing. It's just kind of having a little snack at the end of service. 
And Paul's saying, if that's the case, just stay home and, and snack and then come to church. But if we judged ourselves truly, he says in verse 31, we wouldn't be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So a person should be able to explain what communion is, why they're taking it. They should be able to explain the gospel because they need to be able to do this in remembrance of Jesus. So if you don't know what the good news is, you don't know how to explain that, then you can't really do this in remembrance, can you? You're eating the bread, drinking the wine, but you're not doing it in remembrance. So we have to be born again. We also have to be able to explain, just very simply explain the gospel. We have to explain what it is we're doing. And the third thing is we must not do it with hypocrisy. So even as believers, believers have a right to the table. We've been given that right through Jesus, but we should not do it with hypocrisy either. These Corinthians, Paul is writing to, they're believers, but he's saying, stay home and eat. Then come to church and hear the word and hopefully you'll repent and you can come back next week and eat and take communion. So he's talking to believers and he's saying, what you're doing isn't the Lord's Supper. You guys are doing this with hypocrisy. So for a church, for individuals, if there's unrepentant sin, if there's something that's deep, dark, hidden, or something that you're just being rebellious against, then you shouldn't take communion because you're doing that with hypocrisy. You're making a, a foolish example out of the gospel by you know, living in sin. Everyone knows you're living in sin, and you come up, and you take communion, and you're like, hey, you know. And that's exactly what the Corinthian church was doing. If we go back to chapter 5, they were celebrating people's sin, arrogantly going, yeah, there's grace for that, making a mockery out of the cross, making a mockery out of the sanctification process in our lives. And so, so Paul's saying, we've got to examine ourselves. And if we're not taking this properly, we're just doing this foolishly, we need to think twice. So if there's unrepentant sin, there's something going on in your life that you're just, you know that you're in rebellion. I'm not talking about sin that you're struggling with. I'm not talking about that ongoing fight that you just can't seem to, to, to conquer. But I'm talking about when your heart is hard. Your heart is hard towards sin or towards people. Uh, you've got unresolved conflict towards other believers and, and you've been just at odds with them. Anything that is just disrupting this communion with the church and with God, it might be the time for us to take off, you know, a week or two weeks, however long it takes you to get to that place where God breaks your heart. There have been times even in our church that there's been people who've been in gross, unrepentant sin. And we've talked to them and said, we still want you to come to church, but you cannot take communion until you get through this thing, and we hope and we pray that you do, you can't live the way you're living defiantly with hardness of your heart and come and put on a show like that. Eat at home, come to church, hear the gospel. We haven't had to do that many times, but we've had to do that a couple times. And the reality for us here too is, is I, you, need to, you need to hear this, okay? You do not have to be even close to perfect to take communion, okay? As a matter of fact, you take communion because you're a sinner. Because you have sin, that's why we need to take communion, all right? So don't say, well, yeah, I sinned yesterday, so I shouldn't take, no, no, no. Take communion today because you sinned this morning, okay? Well, I'm talking about that hardness of heart, 
that unrepentant, defiant attitude towards the Lord and his people, that's when you need to just probably sit there and say, God, I need your gospel and your good news to melt my heart because right now I'm not, I'm not there. But if you sin throughout, well, not if, when you sin throughout the week, you know, and, you, and you have this recurring thing, that you just, it drives you nuts, and you keep doing the same sin, you just battle the same temptations, this morning, church, take communion. Partake in the Lord's Supper today because you've sinned all week long. And take communion boldly this morning because you've sinned all week long. This is what the table is for. This is what the Lord's Supper is for. It's because we are sinners this is why communion should be a celebration of joy where we say, thank you. We, we bless you, Father. We thank you for sending your son to have his body broken and his blood spilled. And now I get to partake and participate in the Lord's Supper. I get this because I am a sinner. So don't have fear as you come to the table. Have joy in your heart. Have hope as you come to the table. The fourth thing here. This isn't a must. I'd say that the first three are definitely musts because of what Paul says. This is not a must, but it follows, I think, theological uh, logic that you should be baptized. It's not a must. There's nowhere in Scripture that says that's the order, but you definitely, kind of, you definitely see some relation. Baptism and communion are the two sacraments that Jesus commanded. Every believer should take communion. Every believer should be baptized. So I think that the best practice is that you would be baptized first, but that's not a necessity. Sometimes there's practical things that, that come up or whatever, you know, maybe you start taking communion because, you know, we haven't had a baptism and we don't have one on the calendar for however long, which we're going to have one in probably in the next uh, month or two. So if you've not been baptized, this is the time to be baptized. This is how I kind of see it, and uh, this is just a, a, a way to sort of uh, picture it. I see kind of baptism is sort of like the public celebration. Is, it's almost like a wedding, right? A wedding isn't what makes people married. God is what makes people married, right? A baptism doesn't make you born again and be saved. Only God does that. But the baptism is, is the public place where you gather with your church family, just like a wedding, and you publicly declare your love for Jesus. And you say, I am one with Jesus. And I want to show my church family that I'm one with Jesus by being baptized, so it's kind of like the, the big party, the big celebration, kind of the, uh, that, that one big time as our family that we get to celebrate individuals being baptized, much like a wedding. And then communion, I kind of see it like that's your ongoing, your, your date night with your wife or your husband, that every week or every couple weeks, whatever it is, you renew that love and that union with your wife by taking communion. Baptism signifies the union you have with Jesus Communion is kind of the ongoing reminder of the union you have with him. Does that make sense? So that's why I think that some of the, the I think somewhat logical uh, path to take is to first be baptized and then be taking communion, but that's not a must. It's not a, a biblical must, but it's a good practice. And so when it comes to baptism, again, if you have not been baptized, it's a command of the Lord. If you believe that you've been born again, if you've been taking communion, you should be baptized if you have not been. And so as we look at these two sacraments, they're both causes of celebration and moments that we celebrate what Christ has done for us. But one is kind of the public with the, the family, that initial uh, showing of this oneness, and then communion is the ongoing uh, public and communal uh, 
uh, response to the gospel that we partake in. Now this morning, I purposely uh, asked that the junior hires would stay in service. Because uh, one, thing, one thing we do here as a church is we have the junior hires stay in uh, once a month. Uh, and the high schoolers are always in service. And I know that uh, maybe some of the high schools, even some of the junior hires, uh, you don't take communion, and that's okay. But as you see your mom and dad maybe take communion, I know sometimes it's kind of awkward. Like, should I stay? Should I go? Like, what are, I'm not really sure. Uh, so I wanted you guys to be in here today because I just want you to know what communion is, what baptism is, what your parents are doing, and, and why. And even after service today, because I, I know sometimes it might be a little harder, confusing, just kind of knowing what to do and When's the right time? And, it's, and for parents, I know it's, it's hard to figure out when the right time is for your, your son or your daughter to be baptized or when they should be taking communion, which is why I wanted to have this uh, sermon be today when the, the junior hires are here. But after service sometime this week, kids, you talk to your parents about the sermon today. Let them know what you kind of think about it. Maybe if you've got more questions. Parents, if your kids don't bring it up, then ask your kids about what they think about it. And kids, be okay with what your parents kind of think is best for you. You know, trust your parents in it. Uh, there's, you know, this, it's not a rush, right? There's not like this deadline, okay? Just trust your parents in this. Let them know what you think about it. Parents, don't pressure your kids to be baptized or take communion. Don't do it for sentimentality reasons. Don't do it for nostalgia don't do it just because we want all of our family baptized together. We want all of our family to go up and take communion. Don't do it for any of those reasons. It's got to be something that your son or your daughter consciously says, I, I believe, Dad, Mom, that I'm born again. And at 12 or 13 or 15 or 17, they might not know. At 37, they might not know. Right? So, so don't put that pressure on the kids, and, and kids don't feel the pressure. Okay, the only reason, and this isn't just for kids. This is for anyone, spouses maybe that haven't been baptized and whatever. This is for everyone. Don't be baptized and don't take communion for anyone except for Jesus. Okay, don't do it for anyone except for Jesus. And know and believe that you are doing that for Jesus and because of what he's done for you. And so, parents, kids, you guys can spend time looking for spiritual fruit, not just, oh, I'm obedient, I get my chores done in time, all that kind of stuff. Uh, really, like Paul says, examine yourself. Know the gospel. See if you know the gospel. See if you know why we do this. Do this in a way where you, as Paul says, discerning the body. You can explain what communion is for, and you believe it, and you believe that you've been born again. And number five, you should do so, taking communion, as a committed member of a local church. Again, I think this is uh, more of a, a should rather than a must, but you should do this, taking communion, because communion is not supposed to be a private thing. We are communing with the body. This is something we do together every single week. This is about not just being one with God, but one with the body of Christ, which is his people. So you should also do this as a committed member of a local church. Jesus gives us this command to practice the Lord's Supper. We do as the early church did in setting apart a special time during our gathering to take bread and wine as a way to remember what Jesus did, give thanks to God for sending him. And we participate, is what Paul says, in the Lord's Supper. Now before I close up, I just want to give you a couple reasons to celebrate before we take communion together. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is a chapter of four. We kind of covered over this lightly a few weeks ago. 
Paul says, the cup of blessing that we bless, isn't it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, isn't it a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, and we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. So though we are all separate and unique and individuals, we have now become one with the body because we participate. Now, the word participate in the Greek is a word that many of you guys have heard. It's the word koinonia. So what he's saying is, uh, isn't the cup of blessing we bless, isn't this becoming one and partaking in and having this communion with the blood of Christ? The bread we break, it's a participation. It's koinonia. It's this oneness in the body of Christ. So we participate in the body and blood of Jesus. So by faith, when we eat and drink the bread and the wine, we don't simply reach out and eat bread and wine. That's not what we're participating in and and, and partaking in, just physical food. We reach out and we take everything that Christ did for us. In faith, as we come to the Lord's table, we participate in the body and blood of Christ. So we're having koinonia, fellowship, and oneness. So we don't reach out and grab bread and wine. We reach out and we participate and we partake in and we reach out and grab and and bring to ourselves all the promises of God. That's what we reach out and partake in. It's not bread and wine It's a reminder for us that we are partaking and participating in the body and blood of Christ. We reach out and we take everything that Christ did for us. We reach out and we take everything that he purchased for us through the cross. That's what we eat. That's what we bring into our bodies. That's what we bring into our stomachs and into our hearts is everything that Christ has done for us. That's what communion's all about. It's not just a a snack time or an intermission or just bread and wine. It's not that. It's participation in the body and blood of Christ. Not just even an acknowledgement of it, but a participation, a oneness that we reach out and we apprehend for ourselves. That's what we do. And we remind ourselves that Christ bought it all for us. He purchased everything for us. He purchased with us. As we take communion, we remind ourselves of this, that when we take communion, we're receiving a reminder that we've received peace with God. No longer is there a division or separation between us and God. We receive hope for our future, security in our salvation, healing from our past sin. The shame that we have is now upon Jesus. We have victory and power over temptation. That's one of the gifts that God gives us through Christ. Through Christ, we have freedom from having to please people. And we don't have to give in to peer pressures any longer because of what Christ has done for us. He takes all of our guilt, all of our shame. He gives us protection from the wrath of God towards sin. We take for ourselves, as we take communion, we remind ourselves that we have this guarantee of eternal life in heaven because of the cross. You and I deserve punishment for our sin. We all have sins and fallen short of God's glory. We all deserve to be cursed by God because we broke his law. Jesus alone deserves all the promises of God, the blessings of God. But the Bible says that when we believe in Jesus, when we put our hope and our faith in him, when we say, I know I'm not good enough. I know that Jesus alone is good enough. I know I deserve the punishment of hell. I know all that. I know that only he deserves the glory of heaven. 
But I believe that Jesus' body was crucified and punished for me. I believe that his blood was poured out to cover my sin. So that instead of going where I deserve, going to hell, I go where he deserves. Instead of getting the curse of God, I'll receive the blessing of God. In Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law because he himself became a curse for us. For it's written, curses everyone who hangs on a tree. So no longer is there any anger or wrath towards your sin. No longer is there any guilt or shame that you have to carry. No longer do you have to be someone who you're not. Try to fool people into thinking it. No longer do you have to fear other people's opinions. Everything has been done for you by Jesus on the cross. There's nothing else that you can do to earn God's love or favor or forgiveness. Everything necessary for you to have God's love. Everything that you need to have eternal life. Everything necessary to have God happy with you. Jesus paid it all. Jesus purchased it all. He stretched out his arms on the cross and he said, it is finished. It is finished. So when it comes to the Lord's Supper here at our church, I'm not the head of the table. The person leading communion isn't the head of the table. Jesus is the head of the table every single week as we take communion together. I want us all to understand that. That every week as we take communion together, Jesus stands before us as our intercessor, our advocate. And he stands before God the Father and he says, thank you, Father, for providing me for Life Mission Church. Thank you, Father, that I got to lay down my life and have my body broken and my blood spilled for these here, your people. These guys were once enemies but now they're sons and daughters. And I thank you as the head of the table. I thank you that this church gets to come forward every week and take communion together as a church family and with us. Every single week, church, Jesus is at the head of the table. He invites us to the table to participate in the body and blood of Jesus. And normally, every week, we have a different person come up and lead in communion, but since this whole message was on that, um, I just want to share one thing as we do this. Uh, and I just want to mention, too, there's sometimes when I preach a sermon, and I, I go and I sit down in my little chair, and I immediately start beating myself up. <laughs> because I start thinking to myself, oh, I didn't say this, I didn't do that, I didn't, I didn't share the good news enough. Sometimes on those sermons that are a little heavy, and I, don't, I hate when I do that. But I always know that whoever's coming up to do communion, I know that they're going to bring the gospel. And I, always t- I tell these guys, you're like my Mariana Rivera, right? Coming in to close out the game. That's a baseball term, just for you guys. <laughs> Coming in just to, to close out the service. I know if I kind of missed it a little bit, if I kind of made some mistakes, I didn't hit on the gospel enough, I know that we're always going to end our service with the gospel. And that's what I love about our church, doing that every single week. So I want to close with this. This is out of a, um, an ancient writing called the Didache. Uh, It's kind of like the first church manual. This is from the first century, late first century. So this is like the second generation church. And this is what they would do during communion. So it's interesting. This isn't scripture, but it's, it's one generation within the first century, probably around 95 AD. It's a little manual. This is how the church did this. So I'd like to read this and we'll close in prayer. Concerning the Eucharist, give thanks this way. 
First, concerning the cup. We thank you, God, for the holy vine of David, your servant, which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. Next, concerning the broken bread, we thank you, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. Even as this broken bread was scattered over the hills and was gathered together and became one, so let your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. To you is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever. Allow no one to eat or drink of your Eucharist unless they've been baptized in the Lord. So that was the best practice of the first church. But this isn't scripture, so. For concerning this, the Lord has said, do not give what is holy to the dogs. After the Eucharist, when you are filled, give thanks this way. We thank you, holy God, for your holy name, which you enshrined in our hearts, and for the knowledge and faith and immortality that you've made known to us through Jesus, your servant. To you be the glory forever. You, Master Almighty, have created all things for your namesake. You gave food and drink to all people for enjoyment, that they might give thanks to you. But to us, you freely give spiritual food and drink, and life eternal through Jesus, your servant. Before all things, we thank you, because you are mighty. To you be the glory forever. Remember, Lord, your church, deliver it from all evil and make it perfect in your love and gather it from the four winds sanctified for your kingdom, which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory forever. Let grace come and let this world pass away. Hosanna to the son of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not holy, let him repent. Maranatha, amen. Let's pray. Father, we want to partake and participate in the bread, the wine, the body, the blood of your son in a worthy manner this morning. And we want maybe this morning to be maybe a, a beginning of a renewed consciousness towards the Lord's Supper, communion, as we partake every week. That we as your church would come in a worthy manner discerning the body, knowing what we're doing, doing this in faith that we have been born again. That we would not do this with unrepentant, hardened sin in our hearts, but we'd rather confess our sins. We'd repent of our sins. But yet, God, also, we would know that as we come today, we come today because we are sinners and we need your blood. We need the royal blood of your son that never loses its power. That's why we do this every week, to remind ourselves that this blood doesn't lose its power. And so we thank you, Lord, that you give us this great gift, this great reminder that we get to practice every single week. We wouldn't take it for granted or just treat it like just some part of a service, but this would be something that is our daily reminder, our weekly reminder as a church family, that we get to participate and we get to receive all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realm because of your son, Jesus. We thank you, God, for your grace, your mercy, and your love towards us. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.